0: The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please be seated. Turn with me to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Continuing in our series in the Gospel of John, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? and given to the poor. He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So for the reading of his word, let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Teach us, O Lord, this morning through your word what we ought to know about you and how we ought to apply those things to our lives. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Comparing and contrasting are common elements of our lives. We see them in our exams often enough, as many of you are going through midterm exams. Compare and contrast this and so on. We practice them in life. What is a better product for a better price? we often ask, and compare and shop along those lines. We often want to avoid such comparisons and contrasting. My son is a better soccer player than your son, but you don't actually want to say that to them. You just want to think it in your own mind. Comparing and contrasting individuals, what they wear, what they do, their abilities, their giftedness, are all things that we do, sometimes unconsciously, often consciously. But John wants us to compare this morning. This is exactly what he wants us to do. In particular, he wants us to examine the actions of Mary found in our text this morning, her act of extraordinary devotion, and compare and contrast with the actions of those around her. Simply put, in the midst of treachery, rejection, and plots to kill, John records an act of extraordinary devotion that testifies to something even greater. The occasion is one of celebration. Many, many were gathered, and the town of Bethany was now well known as the place where Lazarus, according to verse 1, whom Jesus raised from the dead, lived. It was a spectacle. Many wanted to come and see this man who was once dead, now alive, walking around, enjoying the company of many. A celebration was prepared for Jesus as well as Lazarus, and many were busy preparing the meal, including the trusty Martha, while Jesus, Lazarus, and other guests were reclining and waiting at the table. It's at this point something unthinkable and unusual actually happens. Mary walks into the room, and you may remember Mary from the previous chapter when she was overcome with grief when her brother Lazarus actually died. Here approaching Jesus, she said in verse 32, "'Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died.'" You know what the scenes were afterwards when he approaches the tomb and asks them to remove the tombstone. And many said, oh Lord, it stinketh, it stinketh. But yet he raised Lazarus from the dead. But seeing her stricken with so much grief, you may recall that Jesus was moved by her tears and sorrow and Jesus himself wept. Being thankful for the miracle that raised her brother from the dead, Mary entered the room, all eyes on her, and brought a gift for Jesus as an act of her devotion and love for him. Having brought a jar of perfume, Mary proceeded to pour the pure nard over Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Many have looked at this passage and consider this a wonderful act of devotion, an extravagant act of devotion, a surprising act of devotion, perhaps extraordinary act of devotion. What makes her act so unusual and extraordinary, we might ask? Well, on the face of it, there is the financial element, isn't there? We are told that this ointment or perfume is expensive, according to verse 3, and Mark calls it very costly, Matthew very expensive. It's a rare, pure nard that was considered very expensive indeed. We later find out exactly how expensive when Judas explains how much money could have been gained if this was actually sold, according to John, 300 denarii, Mark, more than 300 denarii something that you and I have now commonly referred to as at least a laborer's year's worth of age. So perhaps the extraordinariness of her devotion is simply the fact that there is a financial element to the giving, and we don't want to minimize that element found here at the same time. It seems to be much more meaningful than that. Her act of devotion was a self-sacrificing devotion. The sum of the perfume was enormous, as we have just talked about. I think D.A. Carson may be right when he conjectures either Mary and her family were very wealthy, or perhaps this was a family heirloom that had been passed down to her. It was at a great sacrifice she comes and gives this to Jesus as an act of love. Either way, this was an act of great sacrifice, an uncalculated and unqualified act that gave up what was enormously precious to her. Perhaps Jesus' response to her, not recorded in John, but recorded in Mark 14, may be right when he says, She did all she could. She gave up all that she had. But this devotion was not only self sacrificing, it was also self denying her act was self-denying and self-humbling in this way, when John focuses on the action that she took when he says she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. It is one thing for her to anoint Jesus with expensive perfume. It is quite another for her to anoint his feet and then to proceed to wipe his feet with her hair, oftentimes referred to as the uh, real crown of her identity. It is an act of self-denying and self-humbling devotion and love, one reserved often for a servant who often would actually wipe the feet of the guests who would come. Here, this is a denial, perhaps, in what is a a natural thing for many of us to desire. Desire to be recognized, revered, and respected, were set aside in order that her master and lord may be pleased. But it's not only that it was self-sacrificing, Not only that it was self-denying, you could even say that this is self-forgetting. Perhaps the best way to describe her action is to say that she was self-forgetful. What could she have gained out of the actions that she has taken? Much more would have been lost to her as a result. She was not thinking about the cost to her, both financial and social. Her eyes were firmly fixed on Jesus, whom she desired to devote herself to, and to love. Perhaps not necessarily talking about this particular issue, but I do think perhaps uh, this comment is right from Timothy Keller, who writes in a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, when he comments on the act of self-forgetting. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-observed person or obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less, which is often a struggle for many of us. Myself as the foremost of those sinners, that everything is calculated for my gain, for my desire and whim, for my own aspirations, perhaps. But here, her act, I think, can be described as a self-forgetful act. For her devotion was not merely financial, it was self-sacrificing, it was self-denying, and self-forgetful, certainly an extraordinary, perhaps even extravagant, devotion. One can't help, however, but see Mary's act here in terms of her devotion in light of the treachery that surrounded the text. In chapter 11, verse 53, we're told, so that from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. We're told right after this passage in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. The reason simply being because Lazarus was drawing too much crowd, and because on account of Lazarus, many other Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So surrounding this text were plots to kill, treachery, those who are running away from Jesus, in fulfillment of what Psalmist says in chapter 41 when he says in verses 7 through 9, all who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, the psalmist declares. Speaking of that closest to him, you see what's surrounding the actions of this woman when Judas Iscariot actually enters the scene. We are told in verses 4 through 6, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, "'Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor?' He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Instead of commendation, and perhaps there is something for us to remember here, that oftentimes an act of devotion uh, do not actually bring to us commendation, but rather, as we see in this text, even from those who are closest to Jesus, she receives rebuke and ridicule. Other gospel texts remind us it's not only uh, here Judas Iscariot who ridicules her and rebukes her, but other disciples as well. But his intention for coming before her and others and rebuking her was not a noble one. After all, who can be against giving to the poor? But lest we miss the point, John makes sure we understand the situation well. He reminds us that Judas Iscariot was someone who was about to betray Jesus, not a knowledge that John himself had at the moment, but reminding us as a narrator that he's up to no good. Furthermore, John lets us in on a secret. Judas was not really concerned for the poor. Rather, he was after dishonest gain. Since he handled the finances for the disciples, he would have easy access to the funds. And what he wanted was that he wanted to help himself to it regularly, and especially the amount of money that could have been gained by selling this perfume in particular. In contrast, John wants us to see, in contrast to her self-sacrificing, self-denying, and self-forgetful devotion, Judas Iscariot is self-serving, self-righteous, and self-conscious. As if I didn't have enough self-words for us to utilize, I wish he was a little bit more self-aware, because nobody understood him like Jesus, and in this case, John did. But as much as this text is about contrasting her act of devotion with Judas Iscariot and the treachery that surrounded them, here the very act of devotion forces us to, drives us to see the act of devotion anticipated in the Gospel of John. One can't help notice that there's another comparison we are to make, only alluded to in the text when Jesus says in verse 7 through 8, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me, he said. Jesus' statement here is noteworthy for his defense of the action of Mary when he says, Leave her alone. More significant, however, is Jesus' interpretation of the significance of her actions. Unknown to herself, she has prepared for Jesus' eventual death and burial, something that John the narrator points us to. A statement found in all the Gospels is also following when he says that he will not always be with them, although oh, oh, the poor may always be. I think Raymond Bryan is right when he says the theological import of the anointing in both John and Mark is directed toward the burial of Jesus. Mary's action constituted a prophetic action, a witness and a testimony to what is about to take place. What's about to take place is not only about the comparable passage found in John 13 regarding the upper room, where Jesus reverses the role. No longer as the honored guest, but like the self-humbling, self-giving figure comes and wipes the feet of Jesus' disciples. But even this act of sacrificial and humble devotion pales in comparison to the ultimate and extravagant devotion of Christ. Mary's extraordinary and extravagant devotion points to the unsurpassable act of sacrifice And devotion that all of us anticipate in reading chapter 12 of the Son of God who lays down his life for the sheep, only a couple chapters back. Unknown to himself, in an ironic twist, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, predicted what Jesus would do in the chapter previous. He says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Not knowing, he predicted exactly what would happen that John records as he says he did not see this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Thus John says in 1 John, but this we know, that he laid down his life for us. What words are sufficient to explain such an act of devotion? Paul attempts to do so when he simply says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or to explain the servant-like humiliation of Christ Jesus, Philippians 2 says, uh, "He simply says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Friends, if the resurrection of Lazarus motivated such devotion shown to us by Mary, one wonders about The devotion motivated by yet another resurrection, that of Christ Jesus our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ not only motivates, however, we are told that it also empowers those who are in Christ Jesus who serves him. As Apostle Paul describes in Colossians, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, not because he enjoys it, but in the midst of his sufferings he rejoices. And he tells us exactly why when he says, in which you are also raised, I'm sorry, simply saying, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. And he tells us what this power is in chapter 2, verse 12, when he says, the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's the resurrection power at work within us that not only motivates us, in our service to the Lord. It's not simple wishful thinking or our godly desires or wishing to do good. For our emotional uh, ups and downs change so frequently, you and I know ourselves better than that. But yet the motivation and the empowerment for service, to love the Lord, to devote ourselves to Him, and serve His people, come from Christ, who by the power of God has been raised from the dead. I pray that brothers and sisters here, we, empowered and encouraged by the Lord, will serve him with self-denying, self-sacrificing, self-forgetful devotion and service to the Lord out of our love for the Lord who loved us first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who died and was resurrected for us. We thank you that his resurrection, O oh Lord, encourages and empowers us to serve you. In the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our busyness, let us h- not hide behind our giftedness, thinking that somehow our giftedness or, godly- uh, giftedness or busyness really are indications of fruitfulness and godliness. But indeed, let us lean upon you and your grace, O oh Lord, So that empowered and encouraged by you, we may serve you with freedom and great joy that overflows. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2013, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.